Parshas Noach, found in Genesis, the sixth chapter. Now, before we get into Parshas Noach, I want to go back and go to chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to give a brief um, overview of, of Noah and the circumstance in which he lived. The title of today's class from Barshis, Genesis, the sixth chapter, is How Noah Saved the World. How Noah Saved the World. I hope by the end of the class, we will have properly strung the events and the information, the sort of prophetic tones that come from this text, to see how the generation of Noah was saved, so shall the last generation before the coming of Mashiach, the the uh, Noah will save that generation as well. And you'll understand what I'm talking about in a moment. Noah is born to Lamech. He has, uh, Lamech, his father, uh, lived a total of 777 years. And he died, Noah was 500 years old when he had his first children. Interesting. All of the righteous, it seems, had their children at later years. They didn't have them young and spry like, uh, like we see today. It seems that he had no children. And it seemed like he was the last of a dying breed of the sons of Adam and Eve that existed. In this period of time of about a thousand years, after Adam and Eve, or from the time of creation uh, of man, because we understand that creation is a lot older than a thousand years, right? And so what we're talking about is the thousand years in which Hashem began to deal with mankind are with the mankind that He put the neshama in. All of man that was created on the earth before this time had a nefesh, but not a neshama, right? These were pre-Adamic men. Rashi explains this and says that in the text where it says, and God created man, and then it says, and he breathed in Ha'adam. He created man, he, then it says, and he breathed in Ha'adam, the Adam, meaning that it was Adam that he breathed the neshama into, and it's Adam's descendants who has the neshama. That's why later on in the text, when we talk, when we see the um, chapter uh, 6, verse 4, where it says, there were giants on the earth that day, uh, and also after when they witnessed the, a flood that destroyed the third of the world, the sons of the nobles who were giants uh, would violate the daughters of common people. They would bear children for them. Uh, they the great rebels of men. So this idea is the sons of, I think the text says, the sons of God married the daughters of men, right? And they produced uh, a breed of people called Nephilim, right? Now, this has often been misinterpreted by theologians other than Judaism that says that these were angels or aliens or something like that. The bottom line is this. According to Rashi, according to the great Talmud scholars, the the sons of man are the descendants of Adam and Eve, and the daughters, I'm sorry, the sons of God are the descendants of Adam and Eve, and the sons of 
men or daughters of men are the um, the let's see make sure that's it, or the sons of or the daughters of men are the descendants of pre-Adamic men. Y'all following? The pre-Adamic men and women were people that had a nefesh. They had a soul like an animal. But they didn't have in the Shama a soul like a divine essence or divine spark. Okay? Um, so let me... This is messed up, so be patient, guys. I'm going to have to restart this again. I'm sorry. Um, so the idea is that when Noah was alive... He actually, his grandparents and great-grandparents knew Adam and Eve, you understand, because Adam and Eve lived for so long. So this idea is that Adam and Eve uh, lived for these generations. This is why the oral tradition from Adam and Eve was so readily known and so well-known to, to Noah when, when he was alive. Except that it appears that Noah is going to be the last of uh, a righteous breed of people. In the earth, it seems that it almost seemed as if all evil and wickedness in the earth or in the world was getting ready to take over, and that was going to be it. And so Hashem, seeing this, it says in chapter six, and then when men uh, began to multiply upon the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of, of nobility violated the daughters of common people. If you'll read in that text in the Chumash, can you read for me? Uh, somebody uh, read that chapter verse. 1 and 2. 6, 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. And it came to pass when man began to increase upon the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of the ruler saw that the daughters of man were good, and they took themselves wives from whomever they chose. Okay. Then God says in chapter 3 that his spirit will not remain in conflict over this deal. He's just not going to deal with these people anymore. They had become so wicked that these, these sort of mixed breed of people to possibly, theoretically, could have been also mixed breed between man and a animal. The reason why is the Midrashic statements say that the animals were breeding amongst themselves, crossbreeding, cross-species. And so it was just time to, to deal the whole thing a fatal blow. God saw that man's wickedness on earth, verse 5, was increasing, and every thought which came from his heart, although the day was, was purely evil, meaning that man's thought was increasingly wicked. It wasn't getting any better. God consoled by the fact that he, uh, he had made man. He felt like he had regretted it. And at some point, the Midrashic literature says, and Talmudic literature says, that God was so thankful that he didn't create man in heaven was glad he didn't. Why? Because the angels would have rebelled against Hashem because of the very fact that they, they were all already perplexed as to why he would create man anyway on the earth, much less create them and put them you know, in heaven. That would have been just a disaster. So it says in verse 7, God said that he wash, I will wash away man whom I've created on the face of the earth, Man as well as cattle, creeping things, birds of the sky, for I have reckoned what I'll do with this and what I've made. I will fix this once and all. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The name of Noah can be translated serenity. 
at some level, Noah was probably a very, very peaceful, serendipitous type of individual in a very nasty, terrible world. He's called a righteous man in chapter 6, verse 9. Someone read that for me. Would you read that for me, Val? Neither the offspring of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had begotten three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay. So, Noah is called a righteous man of his generation. Now, if you guys did your study in this week, you're going to realize that there are some com- there is some commentary that is not very flattering of of Noah. Why do you think it's not very com- flattering? Well, one of the reasons uh, Rashi says that Noah, if he lived in the time of Abraham, he wouldn't have been called a righteous man. Rashi also states that Noah did not have Imuna like he should have. And he refers to some issues, and we'll talk about them in a moment. At this moment of Noah's life, he's 500 years old. He has three sons. He only begins to have children when he starts building the ark. Something very big is getting ready to happen. God seemed to have preserved the next generation, the final generation that will enter into the new land and into the new world by his sons, by not allowing Noah to have sons earlier. The concern would be, if he would have had sons earlier, they would have been caught up in all of the sin of that generation. So he preserves the next generation, and we know that Shem, or Shem is our progenitor. He's the one who has given us the oral Torah. He's the one that we stand so grateful to, to now as we, as we begin to study those people from the nations understand that Shem is the very one that gave the oral Torah to Abraham. And we today are seeing a resurrection of the teaching of Shem in the nations. And I'll explain to you that in a moment. He's called righteous. What makes Noah righteous in his generation? Well, he was from his father's descendants, or from his father's fathers, and they were righteous men. And these men carried about in themselves the knowledge of Hashem, the knowledge of the Torah that that was given to Adam. But it says that Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yephes, uh, were born. And it says the earth became depraved and more idolatrous at this time. The earth became full of robbery. God saw uh, saw the earth... And look, it had become depraved, for all human and animal flesh had depraved its nature nature on the earth. And what did I refer to this verse a little while ago when I said that man and animal had become sexually depraved? They were breeding amongst themselves, which is a real strange thing, but it is the way. This is where we get it from that text. Say again? It's prohibited in Torah, right. Right, absolutely. Well, one of the things, you know, often when we read things in the, in the text of Torah, without explicitly saying something, it, it volumes of, there's no wasted words in the Torah, okay? Just there are no wasted words. So, for example, uh, it is obvious that the human beings have the capability of talking to, the dead, to dead people. 
right? Regardless of what you personally believe, you might be a skeptic. Does it matter? Because Hashem says not to talk to dead people, then it's obvious you can talk to dead people, right? If He says not to intermix species, don't do it because you can do that and there could be disastrous results. Idea of breeding a a donkey and a horse makes a mule which cannot procreate itself. Right, it's an amazing thing. You can do it. It shouldn't be done. Verse 13, can you read for me, Val? God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with robbery through them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them from the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make the ark with compartments and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you should make it. 300 cubits the length of the ark, 50 cubits its width, and 30 cubits its height. A window shall you make for the ark, and to a cubit finish it from above. Put the entrance of the ark in its side. Make it with bottom, second, and third decks. And as for me, behold, I am about to bring the floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is a breath of life from under the heavens. Everything that is in the earth shall expire. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And from all that lives of all flesh, two of each shall you bring into the ark to keep alive with you. They shall be male and female. From each bird according to its kind, and from each animal according to its kind, and from each thing that creeps on the ground according to its kind, two of each shall come to you to keep alive. And as for you, to take yourself of every food that is eaten and gather it into yourself, so that it shall be as food for you and for them. Noah did according to everything God commanded him, so he did. Okay. This ark... How long is it? Approximately 450 feet long, maybe? 100 feet wide? Uh, we really don't know if it's a box, if it's uh, ship-looking, but more than likely a box shape. The reason why they say that is that, that if it was built on the refinement of a ship because of its wood, it had probably fallen apart. It doesn't matter to me. It was just big. The problem is, though, how can you put all the animals of the world in the ark? Of each kind, but even at that. Right. So, two of clean of each kind, right? So, which meant that, huh? Two of the uh, clean, unclean. Yeah, yeah. And seven of clean. Seven of clean. Yeah, it is quite a few. But it wasn't all the animals of the world. That's one of the facts and myths of, you know. Of, of creation. So it's not all species, it's one, uh, two of, of, the, of the unclean and, and seven of the clean. Why seven of the clean? Sac- sacrifice and eating, right? Later on, because he's going to allow them to eat, eat. Up to this point, they ate primarily vegetables, uh, which I have the feeling that some of the, of, of the um, wicked generation was not like that. They would rip an animal off and eat it while it's still alive, right? Pretty vile people. So, he makes this ark. Now, the question is this. Why did God have Noah build an ark? Was it to save the world? Why build an ark? 
Couldn't he have just told him to go to a high mountain and just wait there and camp out? He could have. He could have saved him anyway. He wanted to, really. But why the ark? Why 120 years? Well, we see, do what? Give him time to repent. The idea of the ark wasn't to save the whole world. Because obviously the whole world couldn't get on the ark, nor could all the animals get on the ark. The idea of building the ark for 120 years is that while Noah built the ark, people would see him building the ark, and they would ask the question, why are you building the ark? And he would say, a great flood would come. Now, by the way, the ark, Tava, uh, uh, is an um, interesting word because uh, it is a word that has its root in the word word. Right? It's not like the ark that you see the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually the same word used for Noah's ark that Noah, uh, Moses was put in. I'm sorry. Moses was, they built him a little ark. The same word that was used here. Its root is, is word. Later on, we're going to kind of understand that the sages say that it was, in reality, through Noah's prayer and devotion to the study of Torah, meaning the study of the Torah of Adam that came down to him, was what helped sustain him for that 120 years of building the ark, knowing that at this point it looks like it's only he and his sons and future daughter-in-laws will be the only ones that will ever get on this ark. That's pretty daunting to realize you are the odd man out. Now, can you imagine living in a wicked, perverse society in which you are the only one serving Hashem? I mean, some, some, some chuckle because you feel that way sometimes. Depends on where you live because sometimes you feel that way. You go and you go to the mall, you go to the store, and you look around you and you look at the, the perverse level of our generation and it's disturbing. But you're really the odd person in. You're the odd person in. Very, very good point. Right. Right. But, however, we are, we are gear. And the reason why that we're gear, we're strangers in a strange land. We do not belong here. Okay, Noah did not belong where he was at, and God had to bring him out of that place. So Noah is told to build this ark, and it wasn't built for the purpose of saving the world. However, the world to come, that is the generation after Noah, was going to be saved by the ark. But the purpose of the ark was to get the people to repent. That's what it was about. Get the people to turn their hearts. But they didn't do it. According to Midrashic sources, they would come and jeer at him, tease him, laugh at him. 120 years is a long time to be made a fool. Right? It's a long time to hold your peace. Yes, ma'am. Correct. Nor did the children. There's a good reason for that, too. Very good reason. Right, right. So, now there, there, is, there is some interesting uh, illumination that takes place from the, the, the commentary that says that Noah never did pray for his generation. Now, that comes as a criticism from some of Midrashic sources. I don't know. Maybe I'm just the eternal optimist, and I'm always looking at the good side of people. And I don't want to think negative, but I'm thinking if I lived in a cesspool like he was living in, where people were having inappropriate sexual relationships with animals, 
It was happening on the streets. It was happening in the markets. People were trading their children for all types of horrible things. If I were living in that type of world, I'm not sure that I would waste my time. Like if the threat of a deluge, uh, deluge of a flood to destroy the earth was not good enough, then me standing on the preach corner praying for you, I'm not sure that that's going to help. We are, we are living in many aspects in an age like that. The, the only positive thing is that there are more than one Noah in the world. And that's where we're going to go to. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Maybe so, but I would think it would have been listed. But let me just say this. This is one of the criticisms coming from the sages, that he did just what God told him to do and nothing more. Didn't do anything else. He just built the ark. That was big. ark was pretty big. 120 years. But it was a mitzvah, right? He stayed committed to that mitzvah, and he did it. So, but he did exactly. So that's the criticism. But understand, understand. Go ahead. He did exactly what God asked him to do. Now, mind you, this comes from the mouth of some of the greatest Jewish sages of all. Right? But our thinking, especially many of you in this room who are B'nai Noach or the Ger, sees it from Ger eyes, sees it from the Noahide eye, who says, you know what? Noah did exactly what God asked him to do. You know, the, the Jews have been given the responsibility to be the, the protector and preserver of Torah, right? The Noahide and the Ger was not given that responsibility. It's not, that's not the Noahide or the Ger's responsibility. So now you can see in hindsight why Rashi and many of the great sages of Judaism looks at this as going, okay, how could you be that big and righteous if you only did exactly what you had to do? And not be a great chucham, you know, a sidam or a great, you know, you, you go to the highest level as you possibly can. Why didn't Noah pray for his generation? Why didn't he, you know, why is it that when the floodwaters came, then Noah waited till the waters got up to his middle of his thigh before he got on the ark? Why? They, Rashi says it's because he lacked the muna. He really didn't think that this was going to happen. Now, Huh? Oh, he did, but he did it just. Yeah, you're going to do what you got to do. But, but okay, uh, but put, listen, all this is going to make sense in a moment. I mean, this is all going to make sense in a moment. And, and when you look at it from the, the eyes of the preserver of Torah, the Jewish people, this seems like a, a lack of amuna. Uh, you only do what you have to to get by. You did just enough to save your hide. And you only saved you and your children. You didn't care about anybody else in your generation. That's coming from the eyes of the great sages of Judaism. But if you're looking at it from a B'nai Noach or a Ger, you go, Noach did exactly what God said and nothing more. He didn't add to it. He didn't take away. He just did exactly what he was told. And, and so he had great faith. 
And maybe Noah was saying it as the water was coming up to his ankles. Surely some of these foolish people will do tshuva and avert all of this. And when it got up to his calves thinking, this is serious, get all the family on. Somebody's going to do tshuva. It, if one person does tshuva, maybe Hashem won't even do the flood. You see, this is what I'm thinking is in the mind. This is my conjecture and doesn't mean anything. It's just my conjecture. But maybe he was waiting for tshuva to take place because he knew that if they would do tshuva, Hashem would turn back. Right, right. No, all that's very, all that's very true. I totally, I totally agree with that. But he did not get on that ark until the water was high, and he realized there's no hope. It's this is it. It's all over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was beyond that. I really do. Because I think it was beyond faith that. was right at right. legs. I right. mean, that's a little bit different right. than having the world around you. Right there right. for Noah. It's it, right there. It's, it's, it, it had become a real thing. Yeah, and, and like I said, look, I'm, I'm, I am in no way second-guessing what the sages say. I, go, I agree with what the sages are saying, that Noah's Imunah was not at the level that Abraham would have been or at the righteous level. Nevertheless, he was the most righteous man of his generation. Yeah, absolutely. Hashem wouldn't have asked him to do anything if he wasn't a righteous man. So, with that in mind, Noah saves his family. They get on the ark. And in the next class, we're going to talk about how that plays out, how he saves his family. But what I'd like to do is take the next final moments of this lesson to show how Noah saves the world in the end of days. Right? There are plenty of Talmudic sources that talk about how Mashiach will come when the Ger comes. When the nations come, then Mashiach will come. The idea is... Noah's son, Noah's son, Shem, was the eldest. And he was the one to preserve and to carry about the knowledge of Torah to the, to the, uh, to the world. Yepeth and Chem was told to dwell in the tents of Shem. You know, we said this the other day, when we hear the term and he dwelled in the tents of Shem, or tents of somebody, that it meant that that individual learned and studied under this person. But something was different about Chaim. Why Chaim? What was different about him, as you would say in English? His generation was cursed, right? Why were they cursed? Later on we'll find out. No. Right, but what, what did they do? Somebody covered the nakedness of... Of Noah, right? Sexual perversion. 
So they were cursed, but tshuva was given to them in the curse. He said, you shall serve in the tent of Shem. But they refused. They didn't serve. They later became the wicked Canaanites who were perverts, who were idolaters, right? So the idea is God never judges a people without giving them an opportunity to tshuva. Never, never. No one is without an excuse. And he gave the descendants of Ham that opportunity that if they would dwell or serve in the house or in the tents of Shem, they would have surely turned out to be a righteous generation just like the descendants of Noah did, or Shem's descendants. Later on, we understand that Shem becomes Melchizedek, Melchizedek, as some people would say in English. He's the one who teaches Abraham and Yaakov Torah, teaches them the oral Torah that came from Adam. Now, one would say, well, how could that possibly be? When you start looking and seeing how long these people lived, you go, well, that makes sense now. Okay, because we're thinking still in the concept of 120 years max, but these guys are living 600, 800 years. So, so the idea is that, that Noah saved his generation. He saved the world. Well, you think, well, how does Noah save the world? They were all destroyed. They were all destroyed. Remember, in the eyes of Hashem, if one is not living righteously, they're dead. Right? He says, those who repent shall live, and those who do not repent will die or be dead. He says, I have no desire to punish the, the dead or the wicked. Well, That's like beating a dead horse. The wicked are dead. So if you walk according to Torah, you're alive. If you don't, you are dead. Now, it doesn't mean you're literally dead. It just means you're like zombies, walking dead, like we were talking about a few weeks ago, right? The, the, you're the walking dead. And the walking dead live the earth right now. They don't know they're dead. They have no idea. They think they're alive because their Yetzirah yetzir is so alive and excited. They just think they're, they're alive. In reality, they're, they're absolutely they're zombies. They're dead. And it's interesting because we used this parallel a long time ago that the walking dead today are, are still flesh eaters. They're eating, consuming materialistic things, thinking that's going to keep them alive. So it doesn't work. So the idea is this. In the end of age, we, are under, we understand that the, the Ger or the B'nai Noah, the descendants of Noah, will come back to Torah. Does it mean that they will come and become the uh, converts? Some of them may decide to convert. But there will be, in the end of age, a resurrection of morality and righteousness that comes from the teachings of Noah, which is from the teaching of Adam. And that in the end of age, what is going to bring about Mashiach is that the people of the nations will begin to divest themselves of their idolatry and take upon themselves the knowledge of God that comes from the Torah. And as they begin to do it, they are building themselves an ark word. It is through prayer and the study of Torah that the nations are doing it. They're coming from every tribe, every nationality. These people have started in Christianity and went from Hebrew to Christianity, to Hebrew roots, to Messianic. They leave Christianity, they leave Messianic uh, uh, teaching and they're not knowing where they belong, and they realize that deep down inside of them, they feel like that they're a stranger. They don't belong where they're at. They just, they don't know where they're, what they're supposed to. They're confused. 
and Hashem is drawing them out in the, in the world of, of destruction that has taken place around them, and He's telling them to build an ark. This ark is not just a device to float you in. It's a, it is built by your prayer. It's built by your study of Torah. And then when people look at you and they go, I don't get it. Why, why, do you, why are you doing all that? Why don't you just be happy like the rest of us and not be all perplexed about God and listening to God? And, and how long are you going to build on this word in your life? How long are you going to focus on the word? Can you, don't you ever get tired of lectures? Don't you ever get tired of hearing about the Torah or crying out loud? No, you don't. You never, you never get tired of it. And you, you realize that this is the mitzvah God has called you to do. And you don't even understand. Think about this. Before Noah built the ark, was there a flood? No. They were living on a continent where there was no rain. Now think about this. You talk about Imuna. You're talking about Imuna where you're told to build an ark before. Listen, if you go read the text, he says to build an ark before he tells him that there's going to be a flood. So Noah's like, whatever, I'll do it. Starts chopping down trees. And think about it. He doesn't have forklifts, chainsaws. Exactly. I, mean, I don't know what he's using. What, stone tools? He's biting it? I don't know what he's doing. So, right. That's why it took him 120 years to do it, right? So the idea is you, in this modern age, are like Noah's. I'm talking about the Ger or the B'nai Noah. You're like modern-day Noah's. One day you are minding your own business and God just speaks to you out of nowhere and says, go build my word. Find out what my word actually says. And you just start doing it. You don't know about the end of age. You don't know about what's going to happen. You've been told all kinds of things. You don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know if it's like the movie Left Behind or if it's like, you know, planes crash and zombies with pimples all over their face and attack you. You don't know about all that. But all you know is one thing, that there is a God. There is a one, there's one true God, and He has spoken to me to, to be preserved in His Word, in His Torah, in prayer. And as you begin to do it, you realize that you are like nobody else around you. You're like nobody. You feel like a stranger in a strange land. You feel very much like Abraham. That we'll learn this in Lech Lecha. You're going to realize you're like, you're just spending, you feel like you've continued to do this mitzvah studying Torah. You know it's the right thing. You know it's the right thing to pray. You know it's right to connect yourself to, uh, to the Jewish people and everybody else around you think you're nuts. But that's all right. Because it is the descendants of Noah in the end of age coming to Torah that is going to bring about redemption in the world. And it's happening. It's happening before our very eyes. The rabbis that are around, the, the, uh, that are in the know, realize and see it's happening. Right now, someone told me there's a shul in town, an Orthodox shul in town. It has 23 converts lined up to convert right now. 23. That's a lot. That's huge. So it's an amazing time that we live in. Okay. So 
out of a class of 13 or 14 people at Rabbi Wolby's class, half of them were converts. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. This this is this is this is redemption. We're seeing it before our very eyes, guys. Uh, you know, I mean, look, there. there Rabbi uh, David Katz made a statement, which I'm still not sure I've wrapped my brain around. Of course, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around a lot of things he says, but he did, did say that he didn't think it's more than a year and a half before this thing wraps up because things are moving so fast that he feels like that some pivotal event's going to take place and it's going to cause all the people that are right on the edge. Now I'm talking about you. I'm talking about other people that are right on the edge that kind of see you and go, eh, a little weird, not for me, but I prefer being whatever I am, X, Y, Z. I'm even, I'm even talking about those people within reform tradition and, and conservative tradition that they see the goodness of orthodoxy, they see the goodness of Torah, but uh, just not me. Something's going to happen, they're going to go, I need, I need to get on the bandwagon. 